What's up, disciples? And welcome back to the Red Letter Disciple, the mission of this podcast to challenge you to be a greater disciple of Jesus. Because when we're great disciples of Jesus, that changes the world. Hey, today's guest is going to help us. It's going to challenge you, get you to think about how do you live, not just live, how do you thrive in a digital world as a disciple of Jesus? I'm bringing author Jay Kim, Pastor Jay Kim onto the show, and he's written about this. He's talked about this, and he lives this. He actually lives in Silicon Valley, so he's right on the cusp of this. And so we're going to learn some great things about what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus in this digital age. It's going to be a really helpful conversation. Today's podcast is brought to you by Red Letter Living. We create resources that challenge everybody to be a greater follower of Jesus. And one of our resources that we love is when churches jump into a 40-day challenge with us. We have more than three 40-day challenges ready to go. We're coming out with our fourth 40-day challenge, and they're all Jesus-centered disciple-centered challenges that are going to get your people to not only live and be more like Jesus, but here's what also you can expect, pastors and church leaders. It's actually going to change your church. We know that through our resources, we've launched more than a thousand 40-day challenges. It'll grow your small groups by 40%. It'll bring unity in a divided time. And get this, it's also going to provide you with six weeks of done-for-you material, so you don't need to think about anything from scratch. That's awesome. We estimate that it would take you and your church 692 hours of staff time just to come up with like first drafts alone of the things we've created. We've spent thousands of hours into each one of these 40-day challenges and really want to help come alongside your church. And here's the good news. Fall is coming And it's a perfect time to do a 40-day challenge, one of the best times. And so lock in a 40-day challenge with us. You can find out more about our initial one if you've never done Red Letter Challenge. Go to redletterchallenge.com slash join. There you can see not only Red Letter Challenge, but then future challenges as well. We would love to link arms with you in ministry and create greater followers of Jesus at your church. So let's do this together. And pastors, if you've never seen this, if it's new to you and you want a free copy, no worries. We'd be happy to send you a free copy of any one of our 40-day challenges just email us at hello at redletterchallenge.com and we're going to get that to you. But lock in now at redletterchallenge.com slash join and let's partner together for 40 days. All right, in just a second, we're going to get on with Jay, but man, what a great season it has been. And hey, don't miss a future season. Here's how you don't miss a future season. You, You subscribe, you follow on whatever platform you're watching or listening. That way, when new episodes come, and I'll tell you more about that at the end, you'll see it come right up. And so, hey, check out that and do that for us. Give us a five-star rating and review. And let's get on to today's episode with Jay Kim. Let's do this. Welcome back to the Red Letter Disciple. Great show today. I'm excited. We're bringing Jay Kim onto the show. Jay Kim is a follower of Jesus in Silicon Valley. He's a husband, a father, a pastor, a best-selling author, and a podcaster. I first ran into his work with a, a book called Analog Church and just recently picked up a copy of Analog Christian and had to have him onto the podcast. So we're going to talk today a lot about what does it look like to be a disciple in a digital age. And I really think the stuff he's talking about that he's writing about is too important for disciples of Jesus not to hear. And so welcome to the show, Jay. How are we doing today? Oh, gosh, I'm doing great. Yeah, really, really glad to be on with you. Awesome, man. So I would love to start with this question because I I think that those of us that don't live in Silicon Valley maybe don't understand what it's like to be there. So I'm in the heartland of America, Omaha, Nebraska. So, So when you talk Silicon Valley, can you describe what it's like to live there and how it may be different from other places in the country? 
That's a great question. I, and I get asked that question a, a decent amount, a fair amount. Um, you know, it's hard in some ways because this is the only place I've ever lived. So okay. everything feels normal to me. But um, gosh, yeah, I, I mean, we are in the Silicon Valley. I live like my front from my front door to the main campus of apple you know the big giant spaceship building that everyone has seen online it's it's about a seven to ten minute drive so yeah i i live kind of right in the epicenter of the place that produces and creates and innovates and dreams up all of this stuff that's so pervasive and more than the geography of the buildings really it's the it's the sort of proximity to the people who live here so um silicon valley is is a challenging place to live Uh, one it's just it's really expensive um you know it's one of the most expensive places to live on the planet and uh so most of the people here in order to make it here they make silicon valley income not everybody certainly not everybody um but uh but but many people in fact um our county just released some new guidelines uh in terms of income so where i live uh, for a family of four if the family makes anything below $115,000 a year, that's considered poverty. Mm. So that gives you a glimpse of like what it's like to live here. You know, if you make less than $115,000 a year, you're impoverished um, because it's so expensive to live here. So um, all of that to say uh, it's fast moving, it's fast paced. I think, you know, um money and success are real idols in in silicon valley they have a real grip on the hearts and minds of of many maybe most people here um so it's interesting not just living here but it's really interesting trying to follow jesus here uh pastoring here you know um so yeah it's fascinating but one of the things it's done and one of the reasons why i've written a couple of books about following Jesus in the digital age and sort of being the church in the digital age is because of, um, because of the pervasiveness of, of conversation around here about digital technology and about social media and about the internet and uh, what some of these things are doing to us. So yeah, it's been fascinating, you know, to be sort of shoulder to shoulder with men and women who are making the stuff that sort of um, is fueling the digital age, so to speak. Uh, so it, yeah, in many ways, I'm really grateful for it. You know, it's, it's pushed me, provoked me uh, to think deeply about, um, you know, my, my own sort of digital proclivities and addictions. Sure. And I think that puts you in a unique spot to be able to speak into this, not just as a, you know, a user of these devices, but like in, in the field with the people, I, I think I've even heard, I don't know if it was in your book or I heard you on another podcast that you, you mentioned that three of the people in your small group, like they work at Apple. And so like, yeah. there's no way you can't get a, away from it there. Right. Yeah. So that it puts you in a pretty cool, unique spot, uh, which yeah. I think is, I think is awesome. So uh, Jay, I first ran into your, your book, Analog Church that came out in uh, the late or not late, but that came out in, in March of 2020. <laughs> so I kind of find it crazy and ironic that the moment that churches across the world were forced to go digital here's this book analog church did you make god angry or like what's with the timing and i actually i kind of wonder did it actually have an adverse positive effect on your on your book i'm kind of curious as a guy that writes books and does book 
you know, sales and launches. Like, how did that, how'd that go? Tell me about that. Oh. Yeah, that was strange for sure. Yeah. I mean, and you know, you know this, when you write a book, the release date is set well in advance. It's not like we timed it that way. I mean, for, well, for about a year, uh, we had known that March was March of 2020 was when we were going to release this book that argues for the importance of the church gathering in person as an embodied yep. community. We <laughs> did not know that we would release that book right at the, the point right. in history when gathering in person was not possible. So we had all sorts of discussions about whether or not we should delay the release. And yeah, ultimately in the end, we decided, uh, no, let's just stick with it and release the book. And in hindsight, I'm really grateful for a number of reasons, but maybe the primary reason is, you know, if there was anything I would have wanted to say uh, as a pastor during the pandemic, it was in that book. Mm. So it was actually quite wonderful, as strange as it was, as ironic as it was, it was quite wonderful to be able to say, you know what, everyone's looking for some sort of re response or reaction to the pandemic. Well, here's mine. This is it. You know, this is this is why I think it matters so much that we continue to gather when it's possible to gather. And um, so, yeah, in hindsight, I'm, I'm grateful we released it when we did. And yeah, to your other question about what did it have an adversely positive effect? You know, it's hard to know, yeah. you know, but yeah. I would say if I had to guess, I think, yes. I mean, the, the conversation was so elevated in terms of, oh my gosh, we can't gather in person. What does that mean? Um, is it important that we continue gathering in person when we can? And, uh, and I think that helped the book sort of enter the, the public dialogue. Um, so I'm grateful for that as well. Yeah, that's cool. So I'm, I'm kind of curious then as the guy that wrote analog church, what did you guys do in, in the, in that time frame, which in California, right, you, you were kind of not allowed to meet longer than yep. most of the country. And so yep. you know, what, what is, what is the guy who writes analog church? How do you, how do you do church in that, in those days? Cause I, I get yeah. the premise and I'm, I'm with you. Like I, 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 you know, I, I believe that, you know, people are like, you write are hungry for human experiences. And there's something about the in-person that you just can't, it, it's, it's different than, than what you can experience online. So yeah, talk me through, I'm kind of curious your strategy then of what, what your church was doing in, in those months or maybe a couple of years. Yeah. So our county, Santa Clara County, was actually the first county in the country to shut down in-person gatherings. And we were the last one of the wow. last counties in the country that reopened. So we were shut down for longer than almost any other county in the country. Um, and we had all sorts of conversation and dialogue as a leadership team, our elder board and our leadership team here at the church on our staff. Um, and essentially what, what it came down to for us was we decided that we would continue dialoguing with our county um, and, and asking them to make concessions, uh, concessions when, uh, when appropriate, but that uh, we would commit to adhering to county guidelines. We were pretty committed to um, doing what our, our county asked us to do. Not every church in the area did that, but we were committed to doing that. Um, primarily, not because we agreed with the county guidelines, but uh, we did it primarily um, as a form of public witness uh, to um, 
it, you know, to maintain what has become for us over many years, a very strong relationship with our city and our county. We do a lot of sort of outside of our walls service projects. We try to be as, as generous as we can um, to our city and to our county. And that's essentially opened up doors of conversation for us with our county. And we didn't want to damage those relationships, um, not for our sake, but for the sake of continuing to be able to partner with our city and our county to work toward the good of all in our city um, and for God's glory, obviously, as we sort of declare the goodness of God's kingdom through our actions. So we didn't want to jeopardize or risk that. So we adhered to all the county guidelines, but we pushed the envelope as much as we can. We did as much as we could in terms of gathering. So the moment, literally the the day they said, okay, we're going to allow outdoor gatherings, our team was um, at the ready. They had ordered tents. So we got the tents up and chairs and got all the communication out this Sunday. We're going to gather outside because uh, the county's letting us do that. So, um, yeah, we just we pushed it as far as we could yeah. while also trying to maintain a very healthy, open, um, mutually beneficial relationship with our city. It's good. Did you guys do a lot digitally then in that interim time? Yeah, we we did what most churches did. Um, we filmed, you know, online services, which obviously I I, I am not a fan of. Um, <laughs> but you know, I'm I'm also not against digital. I think that's a misunderstanding people have. I say in my first book, Analog Church, that I believe digital is great for informing, but but analog, in person, embodied is required for transforming transformation. Um, so yeah, we we did digital and we tried to inform and even inspire our people as much as we could, while also sort of keeping at the forefront of our thinking. Hey, this is temporary. Yeah, this is a temporary concession we are making. Uh, for the good of our community. But as soon as they allow us to gather, we're going to call all of you to gather. So good. Yeah. As, as you look at the land and you lead a church. And so as you look at the landscape of your church and overall the church, and obviously taking probably some of the elements of analog church, talk to the everyday disciple, because I, I think there's a lot of people that in the midst of this, that the, the capital C church was giving confusing messages where some were like, this isn't great. This is only for now. And there were others like, no, this is all awesome. And this is even, even better. And then the lot in the middle. And so I think it kind of represented a really confusing message. And so from, from your perspective, like if we want to be the greatest disciples that we can be, why do we need in-person church as opposed to getting it digitally? Yeah. I mean, digital, you think about all of the digital experiences you have with content, it's curated, you know, it's curated and personalized and individualized for your preferences. So you think about what you do, you know, when you log on to Netflix or Hulu or whatever, Disney plus, or you go to Amazon or eBay or anything, social media, Instagram, TikTok, what Twitter, whatever it might be, the everything is always curated, you know? So when you mediate your church experience online, you know, psychologically, neurologically, even now, emotionally, even physically, your body is acclimated to, th to thinking about whatever content you consume online as a sort of curated or more dangerously curatable experience that you can curate the experience. So you think about watching a service online. Well, the reality is you could 
put the you know tv on mute when the song isn't a song you like or maybe you're trying to watch online and then the kids are running around and you can't really hear so you just kind of have the service on in the background while you're doing your own thing and um that's not necessarily bad again that's a con- concession we had to make yeah. uh during covid but um and it's not to say when you show up you're like totally fully engaged all the time you know i'm certain that when i'm preaching a, a good segment of the of the congregation is like wandering off mentally somewhere else no what they're gonna they're have always, lunch or, we say man they're, they're, you know so yeah so it's not it's not like you know in person fixes all the problems it certainly doesn't i think my concern is that when anything we mediate online are we are mentally emotionally even physically acclimated to thinking about that stuff as content but the church is not primarily content the church is a people to whom you belong um that's what the church is you know ecclesia like called out ones the church is not a service it's not a sermon it's not a set of songs those are all elements of the worshiping life of the gathered church but the church herself she is she's a people you know the body of christ that comes together and the really profoundly beautiful thing about gathering in person as the church is you cannot curate the experience (laughs) like if you go to church this coming sunday there will be people there that you did not ask to be there Uh, there will be people there who are not like you who think differently than you people maybe with whom you even don't really get along you know have very little in common and that is the beautiful gift of the church that it is god's grace that binds us all up together as family as brothers and sisters um, not because we are perfectly uniform or because we're perfectly compatible but in spite of our differences you know in spite of the things that should pull us apart um, as god's people we become one people again by his grace you know because of his unifying spirit and i think that's what it means to be the church so when you mediate church completely online you really miss out on and lose the essence of what it means to be the gathered people of God who are there, not because of convenience or comfort or, you know, compatibility, but because God has called us to be family together. Yeah, it's good. Cool. So if that's the element uh, and the, and the role that a church can play in the life of an everyday disciple, uh, what I think this, the new book analog Christians really gets at is how do we live as disciples in a digital smartphone age. And so why, why did you feel the need to write this and, and maybe walk me through your own story of why this is important to you? Yeah. Yeah. I wrote analog Christian mostly as a prayer of sorts, you know, as I wrestled with and reckoned with my own personal sort of tensions with digital devices and my own sort of longstanding digital addictions over the course of many years, I found myself, you know, because I was constantly scrolling and swiping and tweeting and liking and on and on, I just found myself utterly distracted, Mm. um, which in turn led me to a life of just utter discontentment and fragility and foolishness. And my sense was, man, there's got to be a way out of this. And I think there's lots of different paths I could take, but I, you know, if God's word really is active and alive, if it really is God breathed and profitable for, you know, teaching and correcting and rebuking and setting me back on the right course, if all of that is true, and I believe that that is true, then I just sense like 
scripture, you know, obviously the Bible doesn't talk about social media. That wasn't a reality yeah. 2000 years ago or three, 4,000 years ago when these texts were originally written, but it's gotta have something meaningful to say that can sort of act as an antidote to so much that ails me and ails us in the digital age. And sure enough, I found that in Paul's, you know, famous words in Galatians five, when he talks about the fruit of the spirit Mm -hmm. and he talks about the characteristics of the fruit of the spirit. And as I just studied these characteristics, pondered them, meditated on them time and time again, and considered um, how much of how many of these characteristics are evident in my life, I realized, oh, the spirit cultivating fruit in me, a fruitful life in me, it, it, it leads to the antidotes I most need for that which ails me in the digital age. So um, that's why I wrote the book. I, I really wrote it sort of for, for myself. <laughs> no, I think that's awesome. And, and I, you know, typically when I write too, I try to write not necessarily as like the expert and I know everything, but like I try to write almost the person I want to become. And so yeah. I hear I hear a little bit of that of you in this is like, this is what I want to become. I maybe don't have it all altogether perfect. And so, yeah, yep. walk me through what, when did you notice like in your life that you had some technological addiction or uh, habits that you wanted to break? What, what does that look like for you? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, I think as soon as I got a smartphone, everything changed. <laughs> so I don't remember when I first got a smartphone. It must have been, tw- you know, early 2010s, yeah. right? Early yeah. 2010s, I got a smartphone and now I remember having a BlackBerry. <laughs> yep. And I remember the BlackBerry already being so distracting, you know, just with email and stuff. Right. Uh, but once once I got my hands on a smartphone, yeah, everything changed. I just, you know, my life and m- more dangerously, more insidiously, like every moment of boredom or calm or idleness was now sort of fair game for the internet to grab my attention and to hold my attention. And really, I would say in many cases to rob me of attention, you know? And um, so, yeah, that, that's so much of, of where the book came from. I was just wrestling with my own stuff and I've got two young kids and distinct, I have this distinct memory of um, I, I write about this in one of my books. I just, I have this distinct memory of when my son was born and my daughter at the time was like three, three and a half, something like that. And, um, you know, they're laying down on the floor and she's playing with her newborn baby brother. And I snapped this photo of them. And then I just found myself sort of like filter, like editing the photo on my phone. Cause I wanted to post it on social media and I don't post photos of my kids on social media anymore. I've actually taken them all down and I have reasons for that. But, um, I remember I'm sitting there editing the photo and then all of a sudden my actual daughter, my human daughter, you know, tugs at my pant leg and I have to look past the digital image of my daughter to look at my actual daughter. And she's got this sadness in her eyes. And Mm. she says to me, she says the words, no more email daddy, Mm. you know, because she thought I was on email. And the reason she thought that was because even in her three, three and a half short years of life at that point, she had already experienced me so many times sort of physically present, but lost in the digital ether, typically of, of email. Mm. And um, yeah, that was just a very sobering, sad, convicting moment for me. And I think that moment sort of initiated a journey, a process, man. Like I, yeah. 
yeah, I, this is not the life I want to live. You know, this is not <laughs> the life I want. This certainly I don't think is the life God has for me. So um, that's kind of where the journey began. You know, it was probably, yeah. gosh, at least, uh, you know, five years ago, something like that, yeah. half a decade of kind of journeying out of out of my own sort of digital addictions. Well, and you don't hear many people like mentioning email in the uh, in the technological, you know, you hear social media and some other things, but that's interesting. So I- I'd love to hear from you, like are these smartphones, are all these devices, like are they amoral? Is it a neutral medium or, or not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think I wrote in Analog Church that digital tools are neutral. Um, but I, I've since changed my mind on that. And, and it's not that I was, I think I was wrong back then. It's that the tools have changed. Mm. Uh, I think I may have been wrong back then. I just wasn't well informed enough maybe, but particularly when it comes to social media and, and many people have written about this, so I'm not, it's not like breaking news or anything, but, um, yeah, it feels like the design, the inherent design of social media now is non-neutral. You know, we have enough data, enough evidence. We have enough whistleblowers from some of these companies that have made that abundantly clear. The inherent design of these tools is not neutral. It is intentionally designed to not only grab and hold our attention, uh, but, Um, to perpetuate a certain type of dialogue, which has proven to be the most engaging because engagement leads to more likes and swipes and retweets and shares and, you know, whatever, which then leads to building up the bottom line of these companies. That's how they generate income. More eyeballs means more advertising dollars means more money for the company. So from a business sense, it makes sense that it would be non-neutral because it is our attention that is fueling the machine. Um, so yeah, I would say most tools, and this is one of the things that's so uh, fascinating and alarming about the new technologies and new tools of the digital age. Most tools up to this point in human history have been neutral. You mm-hmm. know, you think about a hammer, or you think about a car, or you think about a, like the wheel, you know, or fire, like they're neutral and they can be used for good or for harm, right? You yeah. think about a hammer, I could take a hammer and use the neutral tool and leverage it positively and build a house for someone in need. I could also take that hammer, which is neutral and use it negatively and harness its negative potential and bash open you know, bash a car window and steal somebody's things. I mean, but, but again, in the digital age, increasingly so more and more of our, our digital technologies have become non-neutral where their inherent design is intended to pull us uh, in a particular direction. And I think we have to be mindful of that one as followers of Jesus, but two, as you know, um, uh, church leaders and pastors and parents and so on. Yeah. And I think like, you know, you mentioned you're not the first one, there's experts. And I think of the social dilemma, which I think, feel like so many people saw that. Yeah. I, I kind of wonder though, does it even, do people even care? Like, is, is it making a difference? Cause you know, you know, the stats more than I do. Like people are, <laughs> they're still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the social dilemma, I think for several weeks, maybe months, it was the most watched 
documentary on Netflix. Um, you know, and just as an aside, I would highly recommend Tristan Harris is one of the key voices in the social dilemma. I listened to his podcast, which is called your undivided attention. Mm. And he digs really deep into all of the stuff that I'm talking about. He's actually been a, a key sort of um, thought leader for me as I followed along some of his research and some of his work. Um, and you're right. I think that's, that's the issue, right? In many ways, it's like, you watch a documentary like The Social Dilemma, now you are well-informed, but that information for many of us, maybe most of us, it doesn't lead to an, any actual change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's problematic. That's one of the issues we have. It's not that people don't know how harmful uh, a reckless leveraging of social media can be. We know. Like most of us know, we're aware. Mm -hmm. It's that our addictions overcome and overwhelm our knowledge. You need more than information, more than knowledge um, to be formed into the sort of person you and God longs for you uh, to be. Um, you need practice. You need embodied practice. You need action. You need a plan, a course of action that you commit to. And I would suggest you need a community. You need people who are going to check in and ask you and accountability really matters. And, you know, accountability can be abused. And so I want to be mindful of that. But um, when in healthy, meaningful relationship, full of generosity, kindness, and humility extended toward one another, accountability can be uh, a powerful, transformative thing. So, um, yeah, I, I think we live in an age of, of knowledge, but, but very little action. And, uh, and I think that's a part of the reason why we are in the sort of digital rut that we are in. Yeah, we may be able to have pled ignorance, you know, this first few years or whatever, but I just don't think we can anymore. <laughs> you yeah. know, there's too much out there that, so you write about the uh, hedonic treadmill. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear what is that and, and what are some of the negative consequences of being on that treadmill? Yeah. The hedonic treadmill was a term that was coined by a British psychologist, Michael Asink, uh, I think in the 90s. And, you know, hedonic meaning hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure, the, the unabashed pursuit of pleasure. And he called it a treadmill because the pursuit of pleasure is like running on a treadmill. You're constantly chasing, but you never arrive. And um, if you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world because that's how pleasure works. <clears throat> pleasure sort of drives you to this, you know, relentless pursuit of the thing you think you need in order to be happy or to feel good. But, but what happens the moment you have it? Like it doesn't feel as good and you give it a week or a month or a year or a decade. And you're like, why did I ever even want this thing? And, uh, you know, this is sadly, this is one of the reasons why whatever the data is now, a high percentage of marriages end in divorce. It's because rather than building the marriage as a commitment to love, um, it's built really, truly, you know, whether people want to admit it or not, often marriages are built on pleasure. They're the pursuit of pleasure. You know what, when we're dating, you know, the butterflies and all of that, the spark is there. You're like, oh my gosh, this feels so good. And then you get married and then inevitably in every single marriage, 100% of the time, those butterflies will go away and you find yourself in year two or year five or year 20 or year 40. And you're like, you know what? This doesn't feel good anymore. So you're done. You know, um, that's the hedonic treadmill. Mm. 
because then you just jump back on and you start chasing after the next thing when inevitably the next thing will feel good for a little while and then it won't feel good anymore. So that's what he taught. That's what he was talking about that we, and in his, his thinking was that people in the modern Western world and in the industrialized modern West, we live our lives perpetually on a hedonic treadmill. We are constantly chasing pleasure. We're constantly chasing the stuff that feels good. And ultimately in the end, it leaves us totally empty and winded and exhausted and um, utterly dissatisfied. Yeah. And, and so how does the digital stuff like help us with that, that trivial pursuit? Um, yeah. What are, what are you seeing there? Oh gosh. I mean, social media in particular, but our digital mediums in general are, you know, they are designed to keep us running on the hedonic treadmill. And I'm not, I'm not bashing any specific company, by the way, like every, every, you know, company I name by name, I use, right? So this self-indictment in some ways, and I'm not even saying we shouldn't use these things. Mm -hmm. I think we just have to be like mindful of what is happening when we engage. So as an example, think about Amazon. We've all had that that weird experience where you're talking to one of your friends. The uh, you know the other day, I'm talking to my friend about whatever blue socks with red stripes, yeah. and then I go on Amazon to buy to order a you know soap, hand soap, and where like right on the side there is an advertisement for blue socks with red stripes. And then I click it. I was like, oh my gosh, that's weird. I was just looking, I was thinking <laughs> what about blue socks with red stripes. And then what happens when you click? It has the page, but then you scroll to get some of the info. And what does it tell you? Frequently purchased with, and then there's red socks with purple stripes. And you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, if blue socks with red stripes are good, Maybe purple socks with, yeah. or, you know, red socks with purple stripes. Maybe that's better. <laughs> if like one pair of socks is good, maybe two pairs are, are, are better, you know? Right. And then if you don't like it, it gives you 844 other options of <laughs> other types of socks with stripes and just on and on. This is the hedonic treadmill. It's essentially telling you this is good, but it's not enough. There's more. There's more you can have. And that's the treadmill. There's always more. That's just the reality of life. There will always be more. More is always possible. But if the pursuit, if life is centered on the pursuit of more, you will always come up empty because there is always more possible. Um, this happens with social media all the time. You know, we often find ourselves comparing sort of our ordinary lives to the glossy curated highlights of other people's Instagram feeds. You know, we yeah. sit in our cubicle typing up our TPS reports or whatever. And then we open up Instagram and there's Bob and he's vacationing in the Maldives. And he's got this beautiful photo of himself sitting on a white sand beach, drinking a margarita or whatever. And we're just thinking to ourselves, like, why aren't I in the Maldives? <laughs> this is the hedonic treadmill. You know, it's it, yeah. it's it is the mechanism that runs uh, the attention economy of the digital age. And um, we have to be mindful of that. We have to be aware so that we can engage in a thoughtful, meaningful, responsible way. It's good. Yeah. I talk all the time. There's, you know, when you pursue anything other than Christ, like 
you can climb pretty high in this world and, you know, you can accomplish the American dream and get to the top. And man, if Christ isn't there, it's empty and you're always going to want That's more right. and see that digitally. Absolutely. So you talked earlier uh, and your book focuses on uh, three positive words that, that when you are too addicted or too dependent, whatever words you might choose on the digital devices, that it robs you of these three positive words, contentment, resilience, and wisdom. I think I heard you say the opposite words earlier, that that's what you were experiencing, discontentment, fragility, and was it foolishness? Yeah. And so I, I want to break down that a little bit with you because I, I think there are so many people out there that, again, are disciples of, they're called to be disciples of Jesus, but it's hard to be a really great and effective disciple of Jesus if you're discontent, fragile, and foolish. Yeah. So I, I want to break down these three words a little bit and start with contentment. So how, do, how does the digital age, uh, it sounds like what you're just talking about, rob us of contentment. It's like, man, I might have just had a really great vacation and went to Myrtle Beach, but if I see Bob in the Maldives, I'm like, oh, but I didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so talk to me about contentment and and how, uh, yeah, getting too, too locked into these digital devices can rob us of that. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, in that example, um, we compare, you know, we compare what we have with what we don't have. We compare ourselves with others. Uh, and that sort of, that sort of unhealthy comparison can lead to real contempt, contempt toward others and contempt actually in some strange ways toward ourselves, toward our own lived experiences and lives. And then that contempt can often spiral us into what I would call self-centric despair, this sort of inability to see beyond the self, mm. you know, to constantly see and experience all of life filtered through the lens of me. And that's just no way to live. It's incredibly isolating. Uh, it makes you utterly lonely. I, I don't think it is um, coincidence that, uh, you know, um, researchers like uh, Jonathan Haidt and, uh, you know, Gene Twenge, they've mapped this out through data that uh, it was when the smartphone was introduced to the public Right around that time, about 2012, you see a, a very marked spike mm. in rates of loneliness and isolation, particularly amongst teenagers. And it was right then that things like Facebook opening up the, to teenagers and, and things like Instagram and social media, you know, they began to um, sort of make their way into the into the public sort of um uh, ecosystem of, of human experience. And I don't think that's coincidence. You know, um, it leaves you completely discontent to constantly, again, run on that treadmill. So again, going back to, you know, Paul's words in Galatians five about the fruit of the spirit and the beautiful characteristics of the spirit's fruit, when he bears fruit in our lives, I have found that love, joy, and peace are the antidotes to discontentment. Love, joy, and peace are that which lead to a content life, you know, and love not as a feeling, that's pleasure, you know, yeah. something that feels good. Love is a deep abiding commitment to will the good of another. Mm -hmm. um, and then joy, you know, deep joy, not again, not just feeling good, feeling happy, but deep abiding joy that remains even in the midst of the valleys of life. And then peace, you know, shalom, right? God um, setting relationships right. If we can pursue those things in our lives, uh, it becomes the antidote to discontentment and it leads to a life of contentment, which is the sort of life I think God has for each and every one of us.
So good. Yeah. I think I definitely see that, you know, that, that discontentment comes from that uh, comparison, especially, you know, I think I saw not long ago, uh, there was a study, I don't know which exactly, but 12% of our thoughts every day are comparative thoughts. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and uh, how much that's going to maybe even go up in percentage with all these new devices and, and yeah. platforms. And, and it's really, it's just really hard to be content when you're constantly comparing. It's really hard yeah. to to live with that peace, as you mentioned, when, ah, man, there's always something more. So if contentment's the first thing, the second word you have is you really want to help people become more resilient. And I think that's a, I don't think that's a word we use often enough when it comes to in the church and in discipleship. And so what is, what is resilience for you look like? And, and why is that important? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, you know, there's, there's so much to say about that. I think one of the reasons why we lack such resilience, it's not the only reason, but I think one of the reasons is because just the increasing speed and the increase in choices that we have in the digital age, um, you know, if, if everything is faster, 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 it makes you utterly impatient. And a lack of patience is deeply connected to a lack of resilience because in many ways, resilience is the ability and the wherewithal and the aptitude to wait, to wait and to, to persistently be present so that you can make your way not around, but through whatever obstacle is before you. So patience is key to resilience. Interesting. Again, I, haven't, I haven't thought of uh, patience and resilience working together so much. And yeah. Normally I think of resilience, like I'm plowing through, let's go. And no matter what happens. And so that, so you put patience with resilience. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you, if you overcome an obstacle quickly, that's lots of things. Maybe that was a high level of skill. Maybe it was a little bit of luck. Uh, maybe it was like, I, I don't know, maybe a high level of strength or whatever, but it's not resilience. Resilience by its nature means you stuck it out. You know what I mean? Like you don't tell someone, oh man, you were really resilient there if they got through it quickly. <laughs> you use that word to describe somebody who stuck with it when most others would have given up. That's resilience, cool. which means it requires and demands patience. Yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons why we are, it's again, not the only reason, but I think one of the key reasons why we are becoming increasingly um, fragile because we're impatient. We're, we're not able because everything is so fast in the mm -hmm. digital age. We're, we're becoming increasingly unable to wait and to patiently stick with something. And that has also led us to being short, not just in our actions, but short with one another. It's made us incredibly hostile toward each other. It's why you see such vitriol on Twitter and Facebook and other places is because we, we're not, again, lack of patience. We're not willing to hear others out. It's like the moment someone posts something or says something that isn't to our liking, we're like, you know, like torches in hand, we're ready to cancel the person. And um, that, that leads to incredible hostility. Mm -hmm. And so again, I think one of the, one of the marks of Christian resilience is again, from the fruit of the spirit, kindness and goodness. Mm. Like it takes a lot of resilience to be kind and to be good to one another in the midst of a, a volatile, viciously vitriolic age. And, um, but I think that's the sort of thing that leads to the sort of resilience that God's calling us to. 
It's cool. And then you have the word wisdom. Uh, so the opposite, obviously, of foolishness, which is what you, you felt like you were experiencing when, when you're too locked in on these digital devices. And so walk me through, yeah, wisdom and, and, and how, you know, appropriately stewarding a life with, uh, in the digital age can lead to more wisdom. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to say here, but I'll just, I'll focus on one key thing. You know, people have written ad nauseum at this point about outrage culture, you know, it's connected to hostility, but we are so at the ready to be outraged about basically anything. Mm -hmm. And um, it's led to such utter foolishness. Not not that there are not things to be outraged about. There are. There are real injustices in the world. And as followers of Jesus, yeah, we have to cling to the reality that God is a God of justice. But ultimately, um, you know, Paul's words, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of this dark age. And um, we forget that sometimes, you know, we assume that the enemy is the other person who disagrees with us. And then we get outraged at them. Mm -hmm. And it, it leads to such utter foolishness. We begin to treat one another in ways that God never intended us to treat. We, we begin to forget the imago Dei, the image of God in one another. So what we need is, you know, things like gentleness and self-control. You know, um, I think another thing that the internet has done is it's just, it's given us so many options and choices for reckless indulgence. You know, you, people know the data about uh, the internet and, and just how much destructive behavior has been perpetrated um, and perpetuated and propped up by accessibility that the internet has given us and it's leading to utter foolishness in our lives. So what we need is, you know, gentleness. What we need is self-control. And uh, again, that is what the spirit of God can bear within us. Yeah. And I love too that thinking about that fruit of the spirit, right? This is not stuff that we can get. Like we have it. If you have the spirit yeah. inside of you, like you have these things. And so we ought to be the people that not just have the fruits of the spirit, but then embody those three words, contentment, resilience, and wisdom. And I think with wisdom too, another another piece with, you know, the digital age we live in is when we're constantly on, uh, we're just losing, you know, you mentioned it earlier, like we just don't get give ourselves chances to be bored, which is yeah. impacting and lessening our creativity and like so much wisdom that potentially could be there, but we're just not even allowing our minds to get there. Yeah. Agreed. Crazy. So I'd love to know then, you know, one of the things I've heard you, you say is, is especially when it comes to social media, um, one of the, I think I've either heard or read you, you say that we can use these things in a, not a recreational way, but in a redemptive way. So walk me through what you mean by, by that. Yeah. I, I think, you know, there's a way in which we allow technologies to use us. And I think the way in which technologies use us um, is essentially technologies, social media in particular can commodify us. You know, Tristan Harris from uh, the social dilemma, he's got this famous line you know, most people, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but basically he says, most people think that uh, social media is free. You just go on your app store. It doesn't cost you anything. You make an account and voila, they think it's a free service. And then he makes the argument, and I think he's right. Nothing is free. If it's free to you, that means you are the product being bought and sold. And that is 100% true. <laughs> we are the products. We think we're using social media and maybe you kind of are in a technical sense, but the reality is 
social media is using you. Yeah. You're using <laughs> the product, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, and um, I'm not saying we shouldn't have social media. I have social media, but we have to be aware that the inherent design of the technology is to commodify us. And so the way we can use all of these technologies redemptively instead of recklessly using them, re recreationally and recklessly using them so that they, in fact, use us, the way to leverage them redemptively is to think through the lens of, again, you know, not transformation, but like information. How do I leverage this tool to inform and maybe even inspire in a healthy way that can pull people out of the digital space and into real life interaction with other people? I think that's the most redemptive way we can use some of these technologies um, as sort of peripheral supportive mechanisms mm -hmm. to accentuate real life embodied in-person analog experiences to together it's good i think you know the other piece that you know that I, that I heard from you say when it comes to that is like having a plan and at least just thinking about <laughs> what, yeah. what this is as opposed to just willy-nilly whatever because if you if yeah. you don't intentionally plan and think about it then it will be recreational and it's going to yeah. use you but the moment you start thinking wait this is I'm not, I'm not to be used by this, but there's a tool I can use. Right. You start talking about how to, how to redeem it and in different ways. So I, I'd love for, I'd love to hear uh, from the guy that wrote analog Christian. Cause I'm a, I'm a dad of two as well. Um, and a husband and a pastor and an author. So we share a lot of the similar identities or roles, if you will, but I'd love to hear from, from you. Like, what does it look like for you to steward your devices in a way that you feel like is effective, whether you, whether you hit it all the time or not, because we're, yeah. we're fallen. So we don't need to get it, but what does it like ideally look like for you to be in this digital space, to still be a part of this world and leveraging perhaps the platforms and tools, but, but also to not like, let it be using you. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. Some practical things we do in our family and I do in my life, um, regularly practicing digital Sabbaths, have been really helpful for me. So, you know, this is from Andy Crouch, but it's a really helpful paradigm for me, you know, at minimum one hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. So is there one hour a day when I can just detach from all things digital? Mm. Um, and I have that in my life. Typically it's when I get home, you know, to my wife and kids. And from that moment on, my phone makes its way to the docking station in our kitchen, my laptop and my iPads all put away. And we're just, you know, having dinner, playing, helping my daughter with her homework, whatever it might be, you know, and it's usually more than an hour, but at minimum, right? One hour a day. Is there one day a week? So for us and our family, it's typically Saturday. Uh, it's not, you know, 24 hours, but it is from sort of the moment we rise, the, the moment we wake up to at least when our kids go to bed, we try to be off of digital devices as much as possible. So we're doing a lot of, you know, I live in California, so we have sun nine months out of the year. So it's a lot of, you know, outdoor stuff, hiking, or just playing in the front yard, um, cooking, uh, a meal and eating outside. We just try to try to be really like 
present and human with one another and with sort of our surroundings. So that's one day a week and then one week a year. So I take vacation every June. My wife is a high school teacher. So right when the kids and, and Jenny get out of school, I take a little break from ministry and we get away for about two and a half, three weeks. And it's more than a week for me because usually for that entire vacation, I delete everything from my phone other than like, you know, Yelp. So I know where to go get coffee and uh, Google or Apple maps, you know, so I can drive around all that kind of stuff. Um, But I delete my email. Uh, In fact, I said, I said something on my, I got this from Andy Crouch as well for those two and a half weeks that I'm gone. I said an auto reply on my email that says this email will likely not be read so that I don't come back to an inbox full of hundreds and thousands of emails. Um, So uh, yeah, that's, that's what I do. So digital Sabbaths Sabbath, are really yeah. helpful. It breaks the addiction cycle. It reminds me that, oh my gosh, there's a better life I can live when I'm detached from these devices. Um, so that's been really helpful. There's a number of other things, you know, we, uh, um, we try to put our phones away before bed, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, the, the digital Sabbath, I think, has been the most helpful for us. So I'm curious, like you say, I delete all my apps. How many apps do you have on your phone? And how long does it take to do that? Because I'm intrigued by that because I'm going on a vacation here not too not too long. Yeah, gosh, to be honest, I have a lot of apps, you know, but that's because I, so when I say I delete all my apps, I don't delete all of them. I just delete the ones that distract me. So. Gotcha. I have apps for like my bank accounts and stuff so I can deposit checks with my phone and all of that. I don't delete those. Um, But what I mean is I'll delete strategic ones that you know, you're going to be tempted by. Yeah. I get rid of all social media. I get rid of uh, like my email. I I no longer access email on my phone when I'm on vacation. Um, Yeah. Stuff like that. Cool. All right, bro. We ask every guest on the Red Letter Disciple kind of this final question. It's a podcast at the end of the day, again, to challenge listeners to be greater followers wherever they are. So if you could issue a challenge uh, to those who are listening, one thing they can be doing this week to be a greater follower of Jesus, what's the challenge? Um, Live a listening life. Live with your heart and your mind open to what God might be saying to you, and then have the courage and the faith and the trust to respond. Yeah. I love it. Live a listening life. So listeners, if you do that, uh, let us know. Hashtag Red Letter Disciple. And we would love to, uh, yeah, be praying for you and supporting, cheering you on. And I think with, you know, the live a listening life, all the stuff you were talking about today, like turning down the noise on the digital devices is probably a pretty good way to start maybe this week and maybe a step yeah. for them. Who, uh, who want to live that life. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, if people want to connect more with you, where can they find you these days? Yeah, thanks for asking. I have a website. It's just jkimthinks.com, and uh, most of my work is there. And um, yeah, my email is there as well. So if you want to reach out about anything, be happy to connect. All right, that's cool, man. Well, thank you so much, Jay, for being a part of the Red Letter Disciple and for challenging us and helping us to be the greatest followers of Jesus that we can be. God bless you, bud. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) 
what an amazing show. Thank you, Jay Kim, for coming on to the show and helping us steward our lives to be better disciples, even in this digital age. If you want to hear more from Jay or connect more with him, you can go to our show notes at redletterpodcast.com. And we've got all the links for his books and where you can find him pastoring, his podcast, all the things that he's got going on. What a great episode. What a great way to finish season four. I think it was the widest variety of topics we've ever had in the season. And I can't help but thank you the listeners for listening for supporting for rating and reviewing if you haven't already do that download and subscribe so that way you won't miss when season five is coming that's right baby season five is coming back in just a few weeks we're going to be joining back in with chris johnson and crew for another 10 to 12 episodes to help you become a greater follower of jesus so don't miss it can't wait to be back with you have a great few weeks go be the greatest disciples you can be god bless you Huda Media Production.